general inspection is something that it tends to get missed a lot or guys just get a little complacent. They're around the equipment all the time and, oh yeah, you know, they all do that. And maybe they don't all do that and it could lead to a problem. Welcome to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is the only podcast out there for professionals working in the gas compression industry. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss the latest trends and what the future holds. If you're working in the gas compression industry and have always wanted to sit down with the leaders in our field to pick their brain, this show is your chance. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com. All right, welcome back to the Gas Compression Podcast. Really excited. Uh, My guest today is Jim DeTore, and he is the owner, founder, president of Failure Analysis Services. Something that is near and dear to everyone in the gas compression industry is failure. It's something that everybody deals with. I don't care who you are. We've got rotating parts, and they're going to fail. And so, uh, Jim, well, I'll let him tell you about Failure Analysis Services, but First of all, Jim, I start every show just kind of asking how you got to be in this industry and how you got to where you are. So what's your background? So my background is I started turning wrenches on heavy equipment, construction equipment and whatnot in Southern California, probably 86, 87. Had a pretty strong machining background prior to that and uh, welding, cut, fit and fab stuff, but have never worked on diesel engines or heavy equipment. That progressed into working for a couple of contractors for about five years. Over that period, learned quite a bit, mainly from mentors and reading service manuals and whatnot. You know, I love to read. And I ended up getting a job with the local Caterpillar dealer. And I worked there for six or seven years and then went to another dealer and worked there for a few years and gained some more experience and different levels of repair, always on the service side for the most part. Doing that, I, I was in a field truck for a lot of years, did a lot of troubleshooting and diagnostics. And they invested quite a bit in me, both dealers did, in training me with various technical training classes. And one of the first classes that I went to was Caterpillar's Applied Failure Analysis class. And by the way, I had no idea that I'd ever end up where I am owning a company that teaches it and consults with it. I left from there and and moved to Michigan. I've kind of lived all over the country working for different cat dealers. I've worked for five dealers over the last 25 years, I guess, and different areas of service and then service training, service management, technical services management as well as executive level general management at a dealership. So kind of gave me a, a well-rounded experience as well as the, the necessary business skills and business acumen to own my own business and manage my own business and treat our customers the way that I wanted to. This business failure analysis services, I am not the founder. I'd like to be the founder, but the founder is the gentleman who originally wrote the failure analysis training program for Caterpillar. And his oh, name wow. was Daryl Davis. Yeah. So Daryl retired from CAT in 2002 after working there about 32 years. In about 1984, he originally authored the training program, Applied Failure Analysis for Caterpillar. And he did a lot of study and got to meet with engineers and metallurgists and a lot of factory people throughout different various manufacturing processes and steel making and stuff like that. 2002, he retired and he wasn't ready to be done. So... 
he ended up starting his own business, which was FAS. That's what most people know us by is FAS, but it stands for Failure Analysis Services Incorporated. Daryl was the guy that taught the first class that I went to way back in, I think it was 90, 91. Daryl owned that business up until 2012, Michael. And in 2012, he was training in Ghana, West Africa, pretty far from home. He was 72 years old doing what we do now. And he suffered a heart attack over there. And unfortunately, he didn't, didn't make it. He passed away and the business came up for sale. So my wife and I ended up purchasing the business from Daryl's widow, Candy Davis, in 2014. It hadn't transacted in a few years after Daryl's passing. And so we had to build the business back up. What was kind of exciting was I didn't have much experience in the gas compression world, really at all. I'd, I'd heard of it and uh, I used natural gas in my stove at home and that's kind of where it ended. But our first customer ended up being an old customer of Daryl's that was Midcon Compression that was owned by Chesapeake Energy mm -hmm. uh, back in 2014, 2015. And they were the first people to book classes with us. And I studied the material. I rewrote some stuff. I kind of freshened everything up a little bit to like make it look a little more current. We ended up doing quite a few training classes for them, our, our level one and our level two. And that kind of morphed into the first couple of classes that I did for them. I did them at their training center in Cleburne, Texas. And I talked to the training manager at the time about the classes that they offered there and see if I could maybe join one of the classes or just sit in as an observer. And he said, no, we'll set you up and you can come over, get a hotel and, and stay for the whole week. And I went through their general gas compression level one class and they had two instructors teaching it. It was a real mind blower for me. I mean, these guys were so incredibly technical when it comes to uh, setting compressors and tuning engines and the different gases and the different fuels and just everything that went along with it. So uh, that's kind of how we got our start in gas compression. And then over the years, I've met quite a few different people. Some of the people after, let's see, after Midcon, I think they either closed or, or were bought out and they sold a lot of equipment off. We started getting contacted by previous employees that went to work for other gas compression companies. Places like, I'm sure you've heard of them, Artrock and Interflex. And mm -hmm. now we've trained for, um, for a lot of different ones. I think maybe Kodiak. We train for aerial compressors, mm -hmm. um, some of their engineers as well, mm -hmm. and uh, just quite a few different ones in the, in the gas compression industry, as well as doing quite a bit of failure analysis consulting for different gas customers that, uh, that have had wrecks that you know, they want diagnosed or they want a third-party opinion or evaluation of the failure. But um, we've taken that business and, and grown it into, you know, I'm kind of proud to say that the first year we were in business, we did six classes and I had quit my job at the dealer, you know, big salary, car, all the benefits and, and kind of, well, I think you know what it takes to, to be able to kind of jump ship, have your own business and, and, uh, and start it off. And it, there wasn't much business because of Daryl's passing a few years prior, but we turned it into 2019. I think we did 30 classes that year and not just gas compression. Also, we, we train in the marine industry and construction and mining equipment industries as well. But a lot of our business is gas and we really enjoy work, you know, working with the gas compression folks and working in that industry. But COVID hit, so we did, we were back to six classes in 2020. And that was, that was kind of a bummer, but um, we got through it. And I think this year we're scheduled to do 35, 36 classes. All right. We've got one coming up in, uh, in June 
what we do, we call it an open enrollment class. So it's open to the public. Anybody can come to it. So we've got a bunch of folks, primarily gas compression customers, along with a bunch of folks from Shell Lubricants attending that class. It's the, the week of the 7th in Fort Worth, Texas, and it's full. Oh, really? I was just fixed to ask if anyone wants to sign up, how do they do that? But it's full. So that class is full. So the next one will be in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, the week of October 8th, I believe. And then we're looking at possibly doing another one in Midland, Odessa area of Texas later in the year. But okay. uh, we'll start rolling with these again and, and we'll publish them you know, well in advance so people can get an opportunity. We don't just do training that way. We also do on-site classes for our customers, which means that the customer calls us, we give them a quote, we quote the travel and mileage and the course fee, and they can send up to 15 people to a class. And we come to like, if we were to do a class for you, we'd come right to your facility. We'd unload and set up. We bring everything that we need, except the room, the table and the chairs. Mm -hmm. Wow. We'd unload, set up on Friday. Yeah, we carry a lot of broken junk iron. It's kind of a Sanford and Son kind of deal. (laughs) That's our theme song. We set up and then we come back Monday morning and we teach a four-day curriculum. And folks really enjoy it. I haven't heard any negative comments from anybody that's attended. They get really excited about the new skills they learn and they have a good time throughout the course week. And we kind of change their perspective a little bit at how they look at parts and how they look at failures and how they communicate with people in general. It's part of the stuff that we teach. Well, let's just, I mean, a, a broad overview of what is failure analysis versus what like root cause, you know, in, in our business, you know, I'm in the machine shop business. So something fails and we always hear the word root cause. Give me the broad overview of what you define, you know, failure analysis and why it's so important in rotating equipment. Well, let's start with root cause. So root cause is what we're trying to get to through the process of failure analysis. So failure analysis, it encompasses critical thinking skills. So that's analysis and, and fact gathering along with inference. So coming up with a conclusion, and we focus on a fact-based conclusion of the root cause of the problem. But it's all about gathering as much factual data as possible, because facts are hard to refute. And then being able to interpret those facts and identify particular events that occurred that maybe created facts. Give you a, a quick example. If we have a bearing fail in an engine or a compressor, and that bearing spins, well, there are a multitude of reasons that that can happen. One of them might be the lack of lubrication. We teach folks how to gather facts and how to use those critical thinking skills in the analysis to determine, well, was it an oil consumption problem? Were we using the wrong oil? Did we have oil leaks? Was oil level not being checked? Things like that. Was it a problem with the pump or a problem with the bearing or a problem with the crankshaft? So we teach people how to inspect all these areas and how to ask themselves thoughtful questions about, well, if you're looking at a bearing and and you see the damage that's occurred to it or the crankshaft, ask yourself, what could cause this specific type of damage and a specific wear type that we teach you how to analyze? Once you identify those events, we use the process of getting those events on a timeline. And so once we get them on a timeline, then we can put them in chronological order, basically the sequence that they occurred in. And through using the skills and knowledge that you gain through failure analysis training, it gives you the ability to put those in chronological order. And if you've done a good job and you've done it right and thoughtfully with no preconceived ideas, then the first event on the timeline should be the root cause that you're looking for, like in your machine shop. So um, 
curious in your machine shop, do you guys have mostly manual machines or CNC machines? Mostly manual machines. The, okay. the bulk of what we do, I mean, the main, our main business is reconditioning compressor cylinders, spraying cylinders, piston and rod, doing valves, stuff like that. Gotcha. So you're looking for repeatability a lot when you have multiple parts from maybe one customer or one, one specific brand or type of compressor. Mm-hmm. And when you don't get that repeatability because maybe a tool wasn't as sharp as it should be or a machine, maybe the Gibbs or something on a, on a carriage or a cross slide hadn't been adjusted or tuned up quite right, mm-hmm. um, you lose some of that repeatability. So then we gather facts in regards to that and then come up with a root cause and then recommendations. Well, it looks like you're going out of tolerance every so often, say once a week, we should check this area with a dial indicator put an action plan in place and that problem's taken care of and it goes away. That's kind of root cause analysis 101, if you will. That's what it's all about. Now, will your gas compression customers call you and hire you guys for like a single crash? So let's say they've got a, you know, aerial, most people are running aerial compressors. So you've got a fourth row aerial unit and there's a crash and everyone starts pointing fingers, machine shops fault, well, the mechanics fault. Well, it's the operator, you know, do you get calls like that just on a single crash or is it something like it's got to happen multiple times or it's got to be a certain size of failure that they'll get you involved in? It's a single crash a lot of times, but it goes more than that. So sometimes it's maybe a component that was rebuilt by, let's say, an aftermarket services company, whether it's the engine or the compressor, and they had rebuilt that component for their customer, similar to the work that you do in reconditioning mm-hmm. parts, right? And then it goes out and it fails for some reason. So our customers will usually call us to do the failure analysis on it. And that has led into several different things, not only analyzing the engine or the compressor failure, but also kind of morphing into maybe some quality control for the next overhaul process. And then that would be the end user hiring us for that to make sure that everything gets put together right. They're a little nervous because it's a lot of dollars involved, especially when there's a lot of downtime. And then we'll go in and we'll, we'll do some QC and make sure that things are going together clean, things are torqued properly. Cleanliness is a big issue, right? Especially when, when you're overhauling a unit like that. And then that is also kind of morphed into some training for some of the overhaul techs for a couple of different companies that we work for. So we sort of do all the above. We'll consult on failures and we do that for uh, not just for gas compression customers and companies, but also for a lot of Caterpillar dealers. You know, it's a a popular combo is the CAD engine and the aerial compressor, right? Right. So having a lot of CAT background makes that real helpful. But we've also looked at some other compressor parts and not just aerial, as well as not just CAD engine, some Waukesha stuff and, and some turbine stuff. So whatever it takes, the the processes in the theory applies to essentially all metals. Do you have a common, answer probably no, but is there a common theme that you see in a lot of, a lot of failures? Like, you know, the 80-20 rule, right? So 80% of the problems come from 20% of the issues. So is it something like cleanliness, lubrication? Is there, is there something you could swing a hammer at and say, man, if we could get this right every time, we would be taking care of a lot of problems. Well, you hit the nail on the head with the cleanliness comment. I'm going to say that that's probably contamination and cleanliness is probably 75% of all the failures that we see. 
when, mm-hmm. when it comes down to the root cause. And more often than not, that contamination happens during assembly or during service work. Anytime that the compressor frame is opened up or anytime that the engine is opened up, we give the opportunity for contamination to enter. But um, a lot of guys are, they do a lot of work in the field and it's tough work with the wind blowing and dust blowing and tough to keep it clean, but you got to do your best. Well, let's talk about inspection, improving inspection procedures. So I'm going to have you back on and you've already agreed to it. So I'm going to hold you to it. Because, I mean, this is a really valuable thing for the industry to get your insight and intake on preventing failures. And so one of the big things is the inspection process and how we can improve that. So where would you start and what would you say to mechanics in the field and, and people in the shops? Like, what are some things that they need to be doing in that inspection process? So let's see. Kind of the way we teach it is, first and foremost, always be in inspection mode. When you pull up on site and you get out of the truck, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? Uh, what do you feel? If things getting hot or cold when they should be the opposite, always be in an inspection mode. And then we teach guys to look for the common senses. You know, what do you, what could you physically see that would indicate that there was a problem with this unit, whether it's the compressor or the engine? Leaks are a big one. Broken or missing fasteners are another one. You know, heat and discolored paint, things like that. So teaching that and then also teaching them to you know listen for problems it sounds like knocks or squeals or grinds or clunks or bangs but um, aside from that when it comes to inspection what we teach primarily are wear types on parts and we teach uh, seven different wear types and how to recognize those types on different components they don't have to be failed they could be a part that maybe you're replacing because you've troubleshot it and you think that it needs to be replaced, but maybe you're uncertain. Well, we can teach you how to discern, is it truly worn or not? Is it a part that needs to be replaced? Is it something that could be cleaned up or salvaged? Um, Because we all know there's a a big parts availability issue right now and uh, the supply chain stuff. But um, teaching guys how to recognize those different types of wear that we see and what they mean how they're created, and once again, asking themselves those questions, what could cause this specific adhesive wear or the abrasive wear? And the abrasive wear is usually due to contamination, but what could cause the adhesive wear or the cavitation erosion or, or just simple corrosion of surfaces? When we talk about inspection, that's really what we're looking for. You know, We get out to a lot of units that just have a lot of oil leaks on them. And uh, I hear from technicians, well, you know, it's, it's this brand engine and they're known for leaking. Well, <laughs> you know, okay. You know, I've worked around a lot of them that don't leak. Um, when I pull up to something and it's leaking out of every cover and every gasket and every seal, it's usually a strong indicator to me that we've got some really high crankcase pressure going on and it's just blowing it out wherever it can. Being able to recognize those things, misalignment issues, different types of wear on on fasteners and couplers and just being able to recognize, I guess, Michael, I could say that some folks and not everyone, but they get complacent working on the same thing day in and day out and go to maybe to a different unit and it might be a different compressor. It might be a different package, but it's doing the same thing. So it's just get out, do my standard checks. When someone with really well-honed inspection skills can get out and walk around it, and notice that, hey, that line's vibrating. So that vibration is going to potentially lead to a crack and that crack's going to lead to a leak. 
And that leak's going to lead to downtime or a thermal event, which we don't want either, right? Because that affects production and dollars. So when we talk about inspection, those are the kinds of things that we're, that we're looking for. So let me ask you this. If someone has gone through your class, are they going to leave with materials that like when a mechanic pulls up to a, an operator technician pulls up to a unit, they've got a piece of paper or a notebook that says, this is what I'm supposed to do when I get out of this truck. Do I see, smell, or hear anything? Check the box. And then step two, check couplers. You know, step three, is there kind of like a, a list of things that could go down to kind of take the guesswork out of it? Well, as far as, as specific inspection processes for specific components, not, maybe not so much, but that's a great idea. And it's something I'm probably going to put together for future classes. Yeah, but, um, that's, I was just thinking, I mean, if, if you, especially, of course, we got labor shortage, just like part shortage. So we're, you know, we're trying to train mechanics in this industry and throw them out as fast as we can in a, in a truck with a crane on it and say, go take care of this, this unit over here. But if they could pull up and they take the guesswork out of it, like, all right, step one, check this. How's it look? Step two, step three, step four, kind of doing that kind of stuff. That'd be super helpful. I think so. I, I agree with you. So when they take our class, what they end up leaving with as far as materials go is they have a small notebook. And I think it's like a six by nine inch notebook. So it can sit on the dash of your truck or in a backpack pretty easily. It's not like a big three ring binder that you get from a lot of technical training schools or classes. But. They also leave with a USB jump drive, and it has all the training presentations with quite a bit of literature attached to the bottom of each slide, giving good thorough descriptions of different types of wear and different types of fractures and things that they might see that could help them go in the right direction rather than the wrong direction, which can waste time or possibly maybe not avoid a failure or, or a crash from happening, right? Mm -hmm. But um, they leave with that. And then we also have some other handouts that. We give them paper copies that they use in class, but there's also digital copies in a reference folder on their jump drives that are analyzing different wear types and analyzing different fracture types. And I tell the guys in class, you know, the, these handout sheets, are, they're really golden. If you use them, we teach them how to use them in class. And they're very intuitive, by the way. But if they follow the process steps on each one of those, they avoid the preconceived ideas, which that's the toughest part. That's the discipline that you have to exercise, but they avoid the preconceived ideas. They can usually get to the problem area and make a pretty good call on it. We train a lot of people and we have quite a few of our customers that stay in touch with us. You know, they'll send us pictures and maybe want a second opinion or, or usually if you send me pictures, I'm going to respond with a bunch of questions. That's just kind of how that works. But uh, they do this and it just helps them make them better at their job. Yeah, let me ask you that. So if someone goes to your class and then two months later, they're dealing with a crash, they've got a failure. You said you'd ask a bunch of questions, but could you look at some pictures and then almost, you know, just via email kind of diagnose problems and do you charge for that? Or how does that work? If someone so, said, hey, just take a look at this. Yeah, so what we do is if you take our training class, then you get my contact information. So you have my personal cell phone number and you have my email address. I let them know in class that, look, anytime you guys run into something and you need another opinion or, or you need an educated guess or maybe a swag, right? right. Um, feel free to reach out. And we also talk about photography and photographing parts and photographing failures in class because one of the things that we run into is people send people pictures and they're blurry. Oh, yeah. 
that's of no value to me. It needs to be a clear, crisp picture so I can zoom in and see what's going on close up. And the students know that and they learn that in class. But yeah, that's we become a resource for them and we hope to be a valuable resource. And quite a few of our students use us in that capacity. It's not just myself. We have another instructor as well. And sometimes they'll reach out to him also to, just like I said, just get a second opinion. Now, if they're wanting it diagnosed, then that means that we have to spend time either traveling to the site and doing our inspection of parts. Then there absolutely there's fees associated with that. If they want a document produced, meaning if you can only send me pictures and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions through process of an interview, then maybe you send me some oil sample reports and some maintenance history. But if you want a document, well, there's going to be a fee associated with that as well. But to give me a call or to shoot me a text message, you know, if I'm teaching, well, then I have to respond at break or after class. But I do. I respond to everybody and try to help them out as much as I can. That's what makes it really enjoyable is when people reach back out and want some assistance. Do you have anybody on like my side of the table that uh, uses you or goes to your classes? Because, you know, on the machine shop side, we don't know anything about the operations, right? So, you know, we're the third party people. So we get some parts in, we repair them, we spray a cylinder, we build a new piston, whatever. We send it back out the door. And then a month later, someone calls us, we had a crash. And we're like, okay. Uh, and they're like, well, are you going to warrant it? We're like, well, what happened? Well, I don't know. And all, you know, we're like, well, did, was it lubricated correctly? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was lubricated. Correctly. You know, we always kind of get into this thing. Like we don't really, you know, we're not the experts, we're the machine shop. And so do you ever have people on my side of the table taking your classes and getting involved? You know, Michael, uh, thinking back, I've had just a couple of machinists mm-hmm. attend our class, but it would absolutely be valuable to most machine shops to have at least one person that that is trained in it and kind of embraces it because it, it's kind of a diminishing skill also. You know, if, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. Yeah, but, um, no, I'm, I'm thinking I, I've got someone in our shop foreman. I mean, it would be absolutely, it would be super beneficial for him to go through your class because that's what happens. We get, you know, kind of grainy pictures from the mechanic and saying, hey, this cylinder is wearing too much on this side. We're like, well, you know, what, we don't even know what questions to ask. And so that sure. would be really helpful. Yeah, I could definitely see the benefit in that. So kind of just to talk about who do we train, right? Yeah. Who attends our classes. So we train a lot of technicians. We train a lot of territory service managers or area managers for gas compression companies. We train a lot of welder fabricators as well. We train a lot of uh, service managers for dealerships. I'm trying to think who else. Quite a few engineers have sat through our classes, not just engineers like from aerial compressors, but from like Lockheed Martin missile defense systems. So we get some folks in there that these were young engineers and they were there primarily for the fractures portion of the class because when they design something and it blows up, they have to inspect the fracture surfaces to make sure that it blew up correctly. So it's kind of crazy, but we get a lot of that. Then we get a lot of warranty administrators also, you know, for, Mm -hmm. for different dealerships and and then we also train for a pretty good handful of major equipment manufacturers. We're training their territory reps as well, because kind of like you said, if they aren't trained in that and they have a failure, you know, the service management or a technician texts them a couple of pictures saying, hey, we want support on this. And they're not sure what they're looking at or what could potentially cause the problem they see. 
so they get benefit from it, just like your shop foreman would. So if you were to give the the top three tangible or, or five tangible things that people out there need to be thinking through and inspection wise, when they're pulling up to a unit, the first thing they need to do is they need to listen, smell, and look. Is that, is that what you said? What do you see? I what do you smell? What do you hear? What do you see? And what do you hear? What do you smell? And be ready to like write that down. So that's the best thing is to document it. Don't try and keep it all in your head. There's just yeah. too much stuff you go through while you're on site. Document everything that you see. If it can't be repaired then, well, hopefully then that report can go back to a service manager and they can get the repair scheduled. And then what's the second thing? So I would say the second thing would be, so we're talking about inspection still, right? Yeah. So you're coming up on a unit, you know, someone's coming up to look at a unit. There may be something wrong. They're not sure. They come up to this compressor and... What's so I'm doing all the visuals and, and then the next thing I'm going to want to check are fluid levels, you know, engine oil level, coolant level, compressor frame oil level, maybe also day tank levels to be sure that nothing has the potential of going low, but not just checking the level, but maybe also pulling the dipstick, maybe smelling the oil. Does it just smell like, like engine oil or, or does it have some other odors to it, like coolant or something like that? So those would be probably the next thing you know, that we would recommend that you would check would be the fluid levels. You're doing your walk around visual first, usually, and then probably fluid levels. Okay. And then the third thing, the third thing, it seems like with compressor frames and engines driving, rotating equipment would be possibly the mounting that we see. So we run into situations. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term soft foot. So a lot of engines or compressor units, you know, if they're not mounted on a skid, then they're grouted in. And sometimes, you know, you get a good grout job, you get a bad grout job. Sometimes you have excessive oil leaks and that deteriorates the grout. So this starts to cause alignment issues and something in uh, in the larger engines that we call web deflection from the block flexing. And, you know, that, that can damage internal engine parts, bearings, crankshafts, blocks, and couplers and coupler bolts alike. So probably the mounting and then obviously any drive element and any cooling element. So the cooling element would be not only maybe the belts and pulleys on the front of the engine, but also the cooler cores. You know, when cooler cores start getting plugged up, things start to overheat. And that's when you need to maybe call the guys over at Ultimate Chemical. They do a pretty good job of, of getting those things cleaned up for you. But we recognize a, a lot of those problems just in the visual inspection. I would say combined with that would probably be looking the C part, looking for vibrations. There's a lot of piping and a lot of tubing going from uh, things like pulsation bottles and going to and from the cooler stages back to the compressor. And when those things aren't isolated properly, then they start to vibrate. And when they start to vibrate, it usually leads to a crack and a leak. And like I said, some kind of thermal event. So looking for those general things, would probably benefit technicians the most. And you can do it relatively quickly. The nice thing is the more you do it, the easier it becomes and it becomes second nature. Now, do you see, so those things you just listed that, you know, that seems like common sense, right? But we all know like those that do great things, they do the, the common things uncommonly well. And so what do you see coming out of, I mean, you know, maybe people that are taking your class, your courses, that have maybe gone through a, a Votech school or something, maybe a, a OSU has a, has, a, has a compressor course. And I think there's one up at, at Liberal. And, and so 
do you feel like people are coming out and coming into this industry with a pretty good idea of what, what it takes to, to do this? I think that they learn the skills necessary to maybe diagnose problems, system problems, things like that. They learn the ins and outs of it and, and the importance and, of torquing things properly and proper alignment and stuff like that. But I'm going to say that general inspection is something that, that tends to get missed a lot or guys just get a little complacent. They're around the equipment all the time and, oh, yeah, you know, they all do that. Well, maybe they don't all do that and it could lead to a problem. Some of them have seen it lead to problems and they recognize it. So they get it taken care of. But uh, with the Votech schools and the guys that come out of classes and schools like that, they learn a lot. They learn a lot of skills and knowledge. But I think one thing that they probably don't learn as much of is the thorough inspection procedures and techniques and understanding what the deficiencies mean what the end result can be of those deficiencies if they go unaddressed. It probably seems just as important as documenting them. Like you said, you know, don't keep that in your head. When you get out, if you don't have something to write that down and make note of it or take a picture, you know, when you get back to the service manager three hours later, we all know it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to remember all that stuff. Oh my goodness. And you probably fielded, you know, 15 or 20 calls, right. 15 text messages in that three hours. Plus yeah. you stopped and had lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you don't write it down and I hear myself saying this over and over in my head and I say it in class, you know, write it down, write it down, write it down, you know, write everything down. Don't take it for granted that you're going to try to remember it because something could potentially get missed. And the little things end up being really big things when we have a crash, right? Yeah. We've got some great, uh, great ideas on inspection and, um, and documenting those those things as as people are, are looking at, at units at compressors and engines and then next week what we want to do is talk about engine and compressor bearings right yes okay so are you going to have anything to show yes i will uh that's what we can be looking forward to next time but in the meantime so you can check out jim uh what, what's the website jim is it f-a-s yeah it's www.fas-training.com Check out our industries page and under industries, you can find the gas compression link. Perfect. And you're on LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. Look for my name, Jim Dettori, and mm -hmm. D-E-T-T-O-R-E, -E, or failure analysis services alike. And then we also have a Facebook page. If anybody would like to like our Facebook page, we would appreciate that. Awesome. Well, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks of doing this. This is, uh, this is it's good education for me. And and hopefully everybody out in the industry. So look forward to having you back on and thanks for coming on, Jim. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gas Compression Podcast. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at gascompressionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com.